Bond, a common sense, generally fun, and hopefully helpful discussion on parenting and parenting culture. Hey, I'm Liz Gumbiner. And I'm Kristen Chase, and we're the founders of CoolMomPics.com. Today, we're talking with Jessica Leahy about kids, substance abuse, and her new book, The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence. And as always, we will close out our show with our cool picks of the week. We'll be back with Jessica right after this. This episode of Spawned is brought to you by Our Greenhouse, an eco-friendly shop we've loved for years over at Cool Mom Picks. They've launched make-your-own gift baskets that make wonderful gifts for babies, moms, dads, kids, even pets, or, well, you know, pet owners. They're filled with carefully curated organic and eco-friendly items and support a great cause. To shop, go to OurGreenhouse.com and save 10% off your make-your-own-gift basket with code COOLMOM. That's OurGreenhouse.com. Use code COOLMOM for 10% off their new make-your-own-gift baskets. So let us tell you a little bit more about our guest. If you do not already know, Jessica Leahy is a teacher, writer, mom, and past Spawn guest who we adore. Over 20 years, she's taught every grade from 6th to 12th in both public and private schools. She writes about education, parenting, and child welfare for The Washington Post, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Vermont Public Radio, and she's the author of the New York Times bestselling book, The Gift of Failure, How the Best Parents Learn to Let Go So Their Children Can Succeed. And hey, if you want to hear our interview with her about that go all the way back to spawned episode 36 and you'll find 36 holy cow 36 this is 233 so it's been a while but she's back and we're here to talk about her brand new book the addiction inoculation raising healthy kids in a culture of dependence which is a truly excellent compassionate guide to helping protect our kids from the draw of substance abuse it's been lauded by so many of our favorite parenting writers and past spawn guests, including Jenny Lawson, Peggy Orenstein, Lori Gottlieb, and now us. So welcome, Jessica. Welcome, Jessica. I'm so happy to be back with some of my favorite people. We're so glad to have you. I think last time we talked to you, you had to go into a closet in a classroom. Yeah, that's basically the story of my life. There were a lot of interviews and, you know, (laughs) bells go off and it's, yeah, it's just really fun. This time I'm actually in uh, the woods in Vermont in my little hermit cave looking out on some beautiful woods in my front yard. My husband's been working from home and he's in a hammock in front of my window with his laptop in his lap uh, working on our front porch. That sounds lovely. You know, I have super like yard envy of everybody who doesn't live in the city around this time of year. So I cannot Mm. wait to be in a hammock myself. So listen, let's just jump right into Mm -hmm. the book. I'll be honest. Don't get mad at me. When I first heard the book title, The Addiction Inoculation, I thought it was metaphorical in some way. Like we're addicted to our phones or we're addicted to helicopter parenting. Like I was wasn't sure, Mm -hmm. but it's exactly how it sounds. Mm -hmm. It is about addiction. And your first chapter is called, Hi, my name is Jess and I'm an alcoholic. And I actually didn't know this about you. And so it's like interesting to me on a personal level and of course as a parent, but it's clear that this comes from a very personal and vulnerable place. And I was hoping you could just quickly give us an overview about your own background and experience and how you came to write this. Yeah. So, you know, when you have a book, when I was, I was so fortunate to have a book that did well, and then there's that period of terror 
where you realize, oh my gosh, what am I going to do next? How can I ever top that? How can I even come close to that? You know, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And so I just sort of sat on this for a long time. I wasn't really sure what it was going to be. And my agent kept saying, oh, that's all right, but let's try something different. And, you know, I just kept bouncing ideas off of her until finally I'm driving from New Hampshire down to Boston. I have to pull off the side of the road because like the title, the subject, the whole thing sort of lands in my lap. And essentially it comes out of the fact that I've been in recovery since June 7th of 2013. And that's been fantastic for me. It's been great. I've been really happy. At the same time, though, now, of course, all that anxiety that I don't have to have anymore about like, you know, oh my gosh, is my husband going to find all the bottles in the recycling? Now that gets transferred to, okay, so our kids Mm. have this massive genetic predisposition because my husband has substance abuse in his family. I have substance abuse in my family. So when the experts say substance abuse is preventable, what does that mean? At the same time, I also had quit teaching full-time and went into teaching part-time because I was traveling so much and also writing full-time. It's amazing. You can't have three full-time jobs at once. I don't know why that works that way, but you can't. So I started (laughs) teaching part-time and I did this for five years in an inpatient rehab for adolescents. So I have kids in front of me. I have a lot of anecdotal evidence about what you know, what gets us to this place where you end up in a rehab when you're a teenager. But I really wanted to understand from a research perspective why these kids are here in front of me and and what might have been able to prevent them getting here. So this is me writing as a mom. This is me writing as a person in recovery. This is Mm. me writing as a teacher who just fell in love with, you know, five years of amazing kids who, despite all their best efforts, ended up in a place that they really didn't want to be in. And plus, I'm a big research dork. So I did a year's worth of research before I even wrote the proposal (laughs) for the book. And that was eye-opening. So this has been a really fun personal journey for me, but also, you know, a big parenting journey and a big education journey. Well, I really relate to this idea of how do we talk about this and look at this with our own teenagers Mm -hmm. when we have this in our own history, too. I think the approach maybe is a little different. You know, my dad was an alcoholic. It's certainly in my family. And it's something that's on the forefront of my mind because now I have, I know you won't believe this, Jessica, but I have two teenagers and two tweens. (laughs) So they all grew up and... This is a big, big thing. But can we talk a little bit more about how you see the roots of substance abuse? You know, we see a lot of people Mm -hmm. blaming bad parenting, which I think is kind of across the board for a lot of issues that kids have. Right. It's the parents' fault. Right. Anything. Oh, yeah. Any kid who has any issue. Yeah. Must be the parents did something wrong. But I, (laughs) you allude to this in your subtitle, mm-hmm. right, that it's it's way more than that. There is a culture of dependence, which is an interesting way to put it, and I know you did this very purposefully. So can you talk more, like, what does that mean? What is culture, how does that fit into this? So what's so interesting, the thing that I really want people to understand about this book is I am so not about making parents feel like they have more to do, that there are things that they, you know, should feel guilty about or that they should feel shame about. In fact, the very reason that I'm out there talking so much about the fact that I'm in recovery is the shame is, you know, what keeps us sick and it's what gets us in this place of just horrible isolation. And, you know, if we can get some people out from under that shadow of all that shame and guilt and stuff like that, that's great. The problem is, is that there are risk factors for substance abuse that are things that happen all the time. I mean, divorce and separation is a risk factor for substance abuse. And I don't want anyone to encounter that information and say, oh, well, you know, great, you're making me feel bad, but you know, I had to get out of that marriage because blah, blah, blah. And that's absolutely not what I want. What I want is for people to say, okay, 
if genetics is about 50 to 60% of the picture, and that's what we understand it to be, and by genetics, there's also, it bleeds over a little bit into environment because there's this thing called epigenetics, which is like a combination of environment and genetics. And then trauma is a big part of that. And adverse childhood experiences in general are a big Mm -hmm. part of that, both the list that the CDC uses and then sort of a, a longer list that I include that mostly comes out of work by Nadine Burke Harris in her book, The Deepest Well. She talks about this. So it's sort of, you look at the genetic stuff, okay, well, my kids have this higher chance of becoming addicted to substances, having substance use disorder over their lifetime. So what do I do with that information? Do I just slink in a hole and and go helpless and feel bad about it? No, I say, okay, well, I have this information. Now that I have this information, I know that my approach needs to be slightly different and also a little bit more intense. There's also this analogy that I kind of hate, kind of love, which is that genetics is the bullet that goes into the gun, but trauma is the trigger. So the bullet could sit there forever. You know, my husband drinks like a normal person and his genetics are just as loaded as mine, if Mm -hmm. not more. So somehow he managed to escape this. And, you know, a lot of that comes from attention that was paid to issues as he was growing up and stuff like that. The problem is, is there's a lot of gray area and it's impossible to say if you do these five things that, you know, you can prevent substance abuse in your child. But I picture it like a scale. If you have a lot of risk on one side of the scale, it's going to be super heavy. You know, I'm talking about those like old timey, you know, <laughs> scales of justice scales. Those <laughs> ones that people have in their Libra, fancy Libra legal scales. Offices. Yeah. So if the risk side is really heavy, the prevention side is going to have to be just as heavy, if not heavier, to outweigh it. So if we know what the risk factors are, if we know when the most troubling years are, if we know that, for example, transitions are particularly dangerous times for kids, then we can step up the preventions during that time. I want parents to see this as, oh, here's something I can have some power and control over in order to make me make me feel like I have some self-efficacy around this instead of just feeling helpless, like, oh, well, you know, genes, what are you going to do? We can't undo our genes. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that, you know, the risk factors that I mentioned in the book and the preventions that I mentioned in the book empower people to feel like they can do something to outweigh that risk side. Well, speaking of giving people something to do, you know, it's interesting because with a book, On a topic like this, I would think to pick this up when my kids are, you know, 12, 13. I'm just starting (laughs) to think. Exactly, right? Like, oh, they mentioned vaping. So maybe I should start to think about this. And I'm wondering, because I know our listeners have kids of all different ages. And, you know, it can be hard when you haven't hit that phase yet and you still feel overwhelmed by whatever phase your child is in. Mm -hmm. But do you think this is the kind of book you read, like, when you have toddlers, when you have five-year-olds? Do you wait until your kids are in middle school and you're ready to have the talks? Like, who? Who do you think it's for? Well, I want to first say that if kids are going to experiment with drugs and alcohol, it's probably going to start in middle school. That's just what we know from the data. Middle school is where it starts. So if you're waiting to middle school to talk about it, then you're too late. I Mm. mean, you know, Mm. there's two things happening here. The statistics show that, yes, you have to start talking about it before middle school. But on the other hand, if you're talking to your eighth grader and your eighth grader is like, well, everyone's doing it, and you can come back and say, well, that's just not true. Only 24% of eighth graders admit that they've had a of alcohol by the end of eighth grade. You know, those numbers can be lower than we think, but among the kids who do try it, middle school is when it starts. Mm. And of course, it escalates as we go up. But in terms of the initiation period, middle school is where it happens. So we have to start a lot earlier. And how early? Well, (laughs) it turns out that the best substance abuse prevention programs are really just great SEL or social emotional learning programs with a health component. And those programs start in preschool and kindergarten. And 
when I say preschool and kindergarten, of course, I'm not talking about, you know, talking about heroin use or methamphetamine use in kindergarten. I'm talking about <laughs> conversations with your preschooler or your kindergartner, you know, when they're first learning their letters and you're sitting there in the bathroom and you talk about like why you spit the toothpaste out instead of swallowing it, why you don't put Tide Pods in your mouth. Mm. You know, sweetie, could you grab that prescription bottle on the counter and look for the letters of mommy's name on that label and then have a conversation about why you think a prescription has a person's name on it. Why can't just anyone take it? You know, should mommy take a prescription that's got daddy's name on it? Why not? All of those sort of conversations that lead to, you know, we don't take prescription medications that don't have our name on them, that conversation flows much more easily. And when parents specifically are surveyed about the dangers of opioid abuse, most parents report that they know that most kids get their first opioids out of someone's medicine cabinet, but only 10% of parents report that they ever even talk about it with their kids. So if we start really young with the easy stuff, why we wash our hands, you know, that kind of stuff, and it flows developmentally along with the kids, then that's fantastic. Now, I knew, given the fact that I keep Girls and Sex and Boys and Sex, Peggy Ornstein's wonderful books, around as a reference, because that conversation is really scary. So is yes. this one, and I get that. So every time I would make an assertion about, like, yeah, you should start in preschool, I give scripts. I'm like, look, I know how scary these conversations are, so here are scripts. Here's examples. Here's ideas for things you can say to make this conversation flow a little bit easier and in a developmentally appropriate way for that age kid. Because I know, you know, uh, we joke around, my, my son mentioned recently that his biology teacher did a little poll in class and asked, how many of the kids, raise your hand if your parents talk to you about substance abuse. And my kid was like, when doesn't she talk to us about <laughs> substance abuse? She literally wrote the book on substance abuse. But that's because I don't have a choice. My kids yeah. came out of the womb with this 50 to 60 percent of their risk already, you know, sort of predetermined by genetics. So I can't not talk about it. And P.S., the more I talk about it, the easier the conversation gets. And that means that we talk about it all the time because it's a normal part of conversation. So I can only promise you that the earlier you start and the more often you circle back around to this topic, the easier it's going to be over the long run. And when you get to the harder stuff, you know, when kids are older, that conversation hopefully will just feel easier. And it won't be one of those like, sweetie, we have to have a talk. Because as you well know, <laughs> like the sex talk yeah. isn't just one talk. The sex right, talk right, is like right. starts really young and continues on through adolescence. And the substance abuse talk can't be just one talk either. It has to be like the sex talk. It has to be lots of smaller conversations so that your kids aren't freaked out by the conversation and you're not freaked out by the conversation. And it's a part of sort of what you talk about. And your kids are likely to know more than you think they know oh, yeah. at every age. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's one thing I've yeah. learned from parenting is as soon as you go to broach a subject with your kids, they're like, I know about that. I heard about that. So you want to be the person who helps initiate some of the conversations so that you can make sure the information is right. Yeah. Not just the information is right, but especially since their perceptions can be really off. Mm -hmm. And there's this phenomenon called pluralistic ignorance, where we tend to overestimate other people's, uh, for example, since we're talking about substances, interest in drinking, you know, how much drinking matters to them. So if you tend to ask your, for example, your college kid how much their roommate drinks, they will tend to overestimate that amount. And what's fascinating about that is boys are going to be more likely to up their own consumption in order to match that 
misconception, that increased amount. And girls are a little less likely to do that, more likely to actually, if they don't want to drink, to withdraw socially. Either way, it's not a good deal. So not only do you want kids to understand what's out there, you also want them to understand that, no, everyone is not doing it. Here's the numbers. You know, I almost didn't write the college chapter because I felt like, oh, man, you know, it's such a part of college culture that no one's going to pay any attention if I say that there's alternatives to drinking in college. And then I found out that actually only 44% of kids in college Hmm. drink on Hmm. a regular basis. Wow. And the reason that the consumption on campus is so high is that there's a very small sliver of the campus community that is drinking the vast majority of that. Oh my gosh. It's the 1% theory of college drinkers. Yeah. (laughs) And we know who those people are. Yeah. And we also know that people who live in their orbit will increase their drinking in order to match some of those leaders. Like it turns out like frat presidents, obviously, and sports captains. If you can reach those people then you can have huge gains. But the other interesting thing about that is if you imagine it's self-perpetuating, right? Because if a college assumes wrongly that everyone is drinking in college, they're not going to be likely to offer non-alcoholic options or even Mm -hmm. sober events, Mm -hmm. going on the assumption that no one's going to want those things and students won't organize them for themselves, figuring everyone else cares more. And there's a funny story in there about some research that was done at Princeton about this. And that was a huge eye-opener to me too. So we have to help kids not only understand the real information on how it affects their developing brains. And keep in mind, I'm not talking about adults and substance use. Like that is a whole other topic. There's really great books about it. I'm talking about the adolescent brain, which is acutely vulnerable to substances during this incredible period of what's called plasticity, where the brain is acutely sensitive to the environment for better and for worse. But also, the longer we keep kids off of substances during their adolescence, with each year, their lifetime risk of substance use disorder goes down. So if we can just get them to 18, we can get their lifetime risk rate down to about 10%, which is sort of what it is in the general population. Wow. Well, we now have a resource, thanks to you, to really help with that. And I, and I love that you bring up this idea of starting younger. I mean, that that is a common theme, actually, that we've heard from so many experts. I mean, we had Jordan Shapiro on. Mm-hmm. He talks about technology, right? Starting the conversations younger about sex, about, yep. you know, drugs and alcohol. But here's what I want to hear from you about before we get into some age-appropriate guidelines for talking to our kids and depending on how old they are, what we say, what we don't say, is why is this so hard? for parents. I mean, I, we know talking about sex is hard, but yeah. is it because so many parents are struggling with their own issues around drinking? Is it because it's something that in one way is completely socially acceptable when you're an adult and yet can be so damaging and awful? Like, I'm curious to know, like, what have you found mm-hmm. or what has been your experience? Well, I'm sure you all are well aware of, you know, sort of the mommy drinking culture, and that is a real thing. And all sorts of products that sort of appeal to that. I was saying recently, I was in a bookstore, and there were some wine glasses in the bookstore that said, I teach, therefore I drink. And there's this idea that, like, we as adults use alcohol in order to deal with our anxiety, deal with our frustration, deal with just the effects of having a bad day. So there's a lot of people out there, myself definitely included for a long time, who didn't want to talk about my own drinking. That was really uncomfortable for me. And yes, I had an issue, but even before I had a bad problem with my drinking, I still didn't want to talk about it. It was uncomfortable for me because I didn't know where the line was between 
I think a lot about drinking and I don't drink that much, but I think about it a lot. So where is the line for me? Do I have a problem or not? do I not have a problem? So that can be part of the problem right there is we have to start thinking about our own consumption and not just our consumption in front of kids, but the messages we send about why we mm-hmm. consume to mm-hmm. our kids. Because if we're sending the I parent, therefore I drink sort of message to our kids, we're also telling our kids that they're exhausting and stressful and that mm-hmm. we have to drink in order to deal with our children. So we have to be careful about that messaging. And then on top of that, the scariest question, the question that was the hardest for me to get really good answers for was, what happens if your kid asks if you use during your lifetime? Oh, Jessica, right. can I bring up an anecdote about yeah, that? Yeah, sure. Because yeah. this is really personal to me. Years ago, when I was in an ad agency, I was doing PSAs, nonprofit ads, for the ONDCP, mm-hmm. Office of National Drug Control Policy. You know, they're the ones who do the great ads that tell you how to talk to your kids about drugs. Mm-hmm. And we pitched this idea. We said, we want to do a campaign about how to talk to your kids about drugs when you yourself have done drugs. Because at the time, all the Gen Xers were just becoming parents. And we said, you know, things were different in the 80s. They wouldn't let us do it. They said, we don't want to do that. We don't have a policy on it. We don't want to talk about it. You should never acknowledge it. We went, what? Mm -hmm. Well, that changed. That changed later. And they changed their policy. And also, our campaign was so good. I'm so mad we didn't get to do it. (laughs) So parents didn't have that information. They didn't have that information. They just didn't know. And they finally changed the information. I mean, you know this. To say that when your kids ask you, you should be honest, but you don't have to mm-hmm. tell them everything. But you shouldn't lie because once right. you you know lose the trust, then you lose trust about everything if they find out later on. I think this is a problem that built up over years and years because even the government didn't want parents to talk about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, what was really tough actually was even when I talked to experts, I was talking to this one expert that I'm not going to name about what he did with his kids. And he admitted that he really blew it because, you know, when you're trying to explain to kids why they shouldn't drink or do drugs, the last thing that I would want to do is be like perceived as that old fogey who's never tried anything, so therefore how could I even know Mm -hmm. if they would want to try drugs and alcohol? So he overly romanticized it to his kids, and his kid came back in his 20s and was like, yeah, I think you really messed up on that one because you made it sound like so much fun that (laughs) it was something that I should try. Like he had really romanticized his college years as like this, you know— bacchanal kind of thing. And his kids really said that was not a great look for you, especially since it made me want to try to do some of those things. So we have really honest conversations about it. I mean, I, you know, I I was a teetotaler for the long time because I was afraid of my genetic legacy. And um, I didn't really ever enjoy pot. It just wasn't my thing. But, you know, we talk about the fact that my husband, during this year after he graduated from college and was really dissatisfied with his life and really felt like he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. He wasn't achieving what he was supposed to be achieving. He hated where he was. He hated what he was doing. He hated his job. And so he and the people he lived with in this just rundown house had grew pot in their basement. So he had it there. He smoked a lot of it because he was dissatisfied with himself. And so what he did was got in this horrible situation where 
he was unmotivated to make any change because he was high. And at the same time, he talked to my kids a bunch about the fact that he knows for a fact that his short-term memory was better going into that year than it was coming out of that year. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge detriment for him because the next step for him on getting back on the right path was graduate school and having to memorize a lot mm -hmm. of stuff. So yeah, we've had very honest conversations at the same time without romanticizing, I think is the best possible path. So there's that in why we feel so oogie about it. And some of us feel oogie about it because there's a very good chance your kid is going to say, that's not what kids on the streets call it, mom. It's called blah, blah. You feel like you have limited information. Oh, yeah. And don't say pot, right? And exactly. Your kids are like, weed, mom. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> well, and there's little things like, you know, when I was in Seattle with my kid when he was little and, you know, there was that very definitive smell going on all around us, you know, for a second there, I'm like, is he going to notice? Should I mention it? Should I? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm someone who writes about this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I can completely get how for someone who doesn't have both feet in this topic all the time that it would be a really scary topic. That's why um, my book, David Chef's Clean, is a fantastic resource. There's a book called High that was actually written by David Chef and his son, Nick Chef. Um, that's really a book that you can put in the hands of adolescents that's sort of geared toward how they might want to hear these things. And because Nick was a meth addict, you know, he, he knows of what he speaks. And and so, you know, I think if the more parents can have ammunition, scripts, data, um, the better off they're going to be because they're going to be able to relay that information to their kids in a way that doesn't freak everybody out. No, oh, that makes total sense. And I feel like we've talked a lot about that approach to hard topics is a great way to go. This is not so different than the other hard conversations. I mean, technology, yes. Well, you know, there's porn and there's sex and there's mm -hmm. all of those things. So yeah. arming ourselves with the data, you know, we can talk about our experience in a way that makes sense, but also say, but here, here are the actual numbers. Because one of the things about starting younger with your kids is that they still think you're cool, right? They're still going to listen to you, right? And it's like, <laughs> you can talk to yeah. them when you're younger. If you're starting this conversation when you're your kids already don't think you're cool, which in my house is everybody in my house right. doesn't think I'm cool right now. It's too late for you. You right. know, so at least you have a doctor right. saying this, a research study saying this. It's like when you put the sign on the television that says, you know, I'm getting tired. Could you please turn me off when you're done with me? Mm -hmm. Because when the TV tells you to do it, it's better than when mom does. So <laughs> I like this idea of like yeah. having other people. It's not you, right? You are not saying this. Other people, other sources mm -hmm. are saying this. That's one of the big points in the book, too, is that there are tons of allies that I don't think most parents realize are as keyed into this topic as we might expect, which is, you know, physicians, your family physician, your kid's pediatrician, many of them, and you can ask whether or not your kid's doctor's practice uses these things. There are these screening tools, and I give all the different acronyms in the book, and they're all, you know, fairly good. But for example, there's one called ESPERT, which is Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment, if needed. And the screening part is, you know, when you take your kid to the doctor and they tap away on a little tablet in order to answer some screening questions, give them their space when they're doing that because those questions are about your kid's exposure to high-risk activities like riding in the car with someone who's been drinking. And if you're looking over your kid's shoulder, they're likely going to fudge those answers just because they don't want you to see. And the pediatrician or family medicine doc or whomever needs to have really clear and honest answers to those questions in order to keep an eye on your kid's risk. School counselors are now professionals with master's degrees. So those are people who are really great and can refer out into community services. And school nurses, totally 
underutilized. We need to have more of them. And school nurses are invaluable resources in terms of screening as well. So I think, and the other thing we happen to know is that for kids, even kids with like massive childhood trauma, that they are going to be a lot more likely to be okay if they have one adult they can trust and mm. that feels supports mm. them. And sometimes that's not going to be us, whether it's because our kids think we're idiots or because, you know, they're just not in a place right now to really con confide in mom. Do they have someone else that they can turn to, a coach, a pastor, a teacher, a counselor, whatever? Um, as long as they have one person, that gets us a huge chunk of the way there in terms of having resilient kids who will probably be okay. Well, thank you for that. Oh, That's uh, super helpful. I just think that this conversation is something we don't need to be afraid of. <laughs> we need to make sure that it is part of everything that we're talking to our kids about. And I love that you said it doesn't need to feel like it's another thing. Like, mm -hmm. I think that's the fear, right? Is that like, guess what, parents? Now, like, you've got the digital parenting thing kind of yeah. down. It ebbs and flows. This is part of our job. Can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing since the pandemic started? So obviously you wrote this before the pandemic, mm -hmm. but I'm sure you've got your finger on the pulse of that. So yep. what's happening? I saw a story going around social media about a woman whose kid OD'd because even though he was quarantined on Snapchat, yeah. somehow he got out. He was yeah. in Santa Monica. And that was horrifying. Yeah. I think he was just vaping and it was laced with something and it totally freaked me out. So I was just wondering if if you had heard that, if you're hearing yeah. similar stories, yeah. like what's going on? So here's what's going on. So uh, going into the pandemic, um, every single year we get a wonderful report that comes out called Monitoring the Future. And if you want handy access to the most recent statistics on what eighth graders, 10th graders, and 12th graders, their attitudes around all kinds of risky behaviors, if you want to know what the kids' attitudes are at various grades. This is a fantastic report. It comes out of University of Michigan, usually in August. And for about 10 years, there was a really clear decline happening in substance use among kids, with the exception of vaping. Vaping was going up, and then there's some novelty boosts with uh, weed as it's legalized. Interestingly, there was a bit of a boost in adult use of marijuana and psychedelics, actually, which is not surprising given not only legalization, but also, you know, Michael Pollan and Dr. Carl Hart just came out with a new book on drug use for grown-ups. So I think a bunch of grown-ups have sort of decided it would, you know, why not? And for grown-up brains, as I said, you know, there are a lot of drugs where, you know, why not? Um, some still have risks, but they're lower than they are during adolescence. The problem is, is right before COVID started, um, we saw a plateau in that decade-long decrease. And it's been more difficult to get in touch with kids and to survey kids. And so I think it's going to really take us a little bit of time to see where everything sort of falls out post-pandemic. I will tell you, though, that I was just on a call right before this with someone who's really hooked into research on kids and stress and mental health. And, you know, anxiety's up, depression is up. I heard one really cool statistic from her, which was that, and this is out of challenge success at Stanford, that parents are worried about their kids' mental health, you know, more than ever, but kids are even more worried about their own mental health than their parents are. Wow. So that was a really big... Um, sort of moment for me to realize, you know, kids are really freaking out about their friends and about mental health stuff. And I've never received as many emails as I have recently asking for help. Just where can I find help? It's been really hard to get access to good therapists because everyone's Zooming and blah, blah, blah. So I think it's going to take a couple of years to really figure it all out. 
but I'm hoping that we hang on to this decrease, that this gradual decrease. I'm assuming, though, that we're going to see a slip back up. Definitely substance use has increased in adults during the pandemic. We know that. We know that adults are drinking more. I weigh 10 pounds more than I went into the pandemic. We're definitely eating more. Um, you know, we do these things in order to self-soothe. And when we show our kids that that's a good response, then, you know, our kids are going to, you know, pick up where we left off and continue those habits. So, so as yeah. with all things, with all our things. kids are watching everything we do. Yeah. So Jessica, let me just end on one more question. Yeah. This, this is a tough one, I think. But you, you stayed in the book. And by the way, I can't say it enough. The book is so good. It's so Thank good. You. I really hope that our listeners pick it up because it's just so helpful. And even if your kids are much older, you will learn a lot from it. It's great. But one of the things you state in the book is that your goal is to help us raise addiction-resistant children. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, do you really think that's possible or is that kind of the utopian goal. So here's the thing. When you look at the big organizations that work on substance abuse prevention, and you look at like the WHO, they all say substance abuse is a preventable public health disease disorder, you know, problem. And I am really optimistic. And you asked why the title is what it is. And the word inoculation is in there, not because there's a single, you know, shot that we can give a kid and it'll knock out their gene for substance abuse and it'll magically prevent, you know, substance abuse. But there's this thing called inoculation theory that is so cool. Inoculation theory says that when you empower kids with information that helps them rebut, so for example, if a kid comes to your kid and says, oh, come on, you know, have a drink of this beer, everybody does it. If your kid is sort of loaded up with the response or feels empowered with a response that they feel that they're capable of using, like, no, thank you, I have a practice first thing in the morning, or no, actually, not everybody's doing it, really only like a quarter of kids are doing it, um, or I can't, I'm allergic, or I can't, I'm taking an antibiotic. If our kids feel like they are inoculated, they have that power to say no in a way that makes them feel comfortable and empowered, not only are they more likely to use it, they're actually more likely to talk to us about the fact that they used it. And here's the best part. Inoculation theory has, in a couple of different studies, they've shown that when we prevent, when we give kids ammunition to help them rebut um, arguments for one high-risk behavior, it generalizes to other high-risk behaviors. So if we're trying to prevent substance abuse in kids and we help give them refusal skills against that, we're also preventing things like sex before they're ready mm. or jumping off of the top of a roof into a pool because they're trying to you know, impress other kids. High-risk behaviors, inoculation theory seems to have a more global effect than just the one high-risk behavior that we're trying to prevent. So I am absolutely so hopeful. I think right now a lot more people and a lot more places are talking about adverse childhood experiences and the massive effect they have on our lifelong health and well-being. And we're starting to realize that these are things that we have to actually intervene on. And if we can intervene on some of the other risk behaviors like early academic failure, social ostracism, aggression towards other children, then we really can reduce this by leaps and bounds. And one last thing I wanted to mention is here's how much potential there is to move this dial. 
Only 57% of schools in this country are using a substance abuse prevention program at all, any program at all, 57%. Mm, Of that 57%, only 10% are using an evidence-based program that has proven efficacy. Wow. So there is a massive potential. And the cool thing is those evidence-based programs with proven potential, they're really just great SEL programs with a health component. And that Mm -hmm. is a very Mm -hmm. big fad right now, which should be a fad. It's, It's a good thing. So if we can get schools saying, oh, wait, we're already doing this SEL thing, and there are these substance abuse prevention programs that really feed off of existing SEL programs, and oh, by the way, Leahy provided us with this information about how much money we'll save in the long run if we spend some money up front, maybe we can actually move this thing, because it's really going to take schools, it's going to take families, and it's going to take community organizations to really get there. But I, I really am that optimistic. I do believe we can reduce substance abuse by tons if we can just start making the right steps. And I think that's what's so great about the book, by the way, is it's encouraging, it's positive, it's Mm. not shaming, Mm -hmm. it's compassionate, and it comes from personal experience. So you're not here to make parents feel like, oh God, another thing that I'm failing at. You really are just so helpful in general, and I love that that comes through in the book. I also want to send a huge shout out and thank you to the stories that I tell in this book. You know, obviously I protected the children. I've changed their names and stuff like that, but there are two people in this book, Georgia and Brian, and those are their real names. I gave them many, many opportunities to get a name change, get a pseudonym, and both Brian and Georgia were adamant that the thing that's going to make their journey through substance abuse worthwhile, that's going to sort of make up for all of that horribleness, including jail, including losing a child, including all the stuff they had to go through, is being able to help someone else. And so, yes, I tell my story at the beginning of the book, but unfortunately, a lot of people who've been through recovery feel like they're suddenly an expert in recovery and just go out there and try to... That's not what I'm an expert in. I'm an expert in prevention. And I felt like my story was helpful, but Brian and and George's stories, I think, really are at the heart of the fact that this is at the intersection of sort of biography and memoir and information-based nonfiction, research-based nonfiction. And I'm so grateful to them. It's fantastic. So again, it's The Addiction Inoculation, Raising Healthy Kids in a Culture of Dependence by Jessica Leahy. And Jess, you are all over the socials. Where's the best place to find <laughs> you? You can find everything at jessicaleahy.com, including how to get signed copies of the books from two wonderful independent booksellers here in Vermont that will ship anywhere. Well, domestic, sorry. And I'm mostly on Twitter. Twitter and Instagram. So at Jess Leahy on Twitter and at Teacher Leahy on Instagram. All right. Well, you're going to stick around for our cool picks of the week, which we will get to right after this. We are so excited to welcome back our sponsor, The Great Courses Plus, because as some of you may know, we're doing something really cool with them. Right, Kristen? Yes, we are. Because guess what? Over in our Instagram feed, I shared a photo of my community garden plot. I know. Which was inspired by the We Time Project. So smart. So (laughs) if you don't know, here's the deal. So we realized that we've been missing all the people in our lives for the last year and that all the research and data basically indicates that when you don't have any shared experiences, you don't have much to talk about. So we were like, let's come up with something that allows us to connect with people, friends, family that we're not close with or not seeing in person yet, and do these courses with them online through The Great Courses Plus. And we called it the We Time Project because we all know about me time. But you know what? 
women need a little more we time. So we enjoyed taking a gardening class and your plot. Oh my gosh. Yes. I have so Amazing. many vegetables planted. I mean, that's all I have to do, right? Like they're just going to flourish automatically. <laughs> right? I don't have to do anything else. I did all the hard work. No, I'm just kidding. I know. And actually, I knew what to do because of the course we took the last time with The Great Courses Plus. And you know what? What's super easy is like you can take that class or, you know, we've got another one coming up. You can try it for free. They're offering a 30-day free trial when you sign up via this special link. It's actually bit.ly. It's bit.ly slash project. So you can try. I mean, they have over 13 thousand classes that you can take for free. And what I like is that it's on your own time. So it's kind of like watching YouTube or watching, you know, streaming videos where you can start and stop and skip around. And there's just so many cool things to take. So we decided that for the next one, since we're coming up on Mother's Day, we would do a Mother's Day We Time project. So I'm actually going to take a course with my mom, Kristen. And we're looking at there's like a guy from the Culinary Institute who's teaching home cooking from chefs, but for the home. There's like some really cool women's history stuff. If we want to do, you know, something more kind of academic, there's some really cool travel stuff. There's languages. So I don't know. We're going to try to figure out which one we want to take together. And then we're going to come to Facebook on April 25th. And my mom, Kristen, I think she's going to join us. Oh, yay. Nancy's (laughs) going to make a guest appearance. And you know what? Actually, if you would like to help us pick what course we should take, that would be awesome. Kristen, what if we put together a poll? I think we should totally do it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like in the Spawned community. So go to the Spawned podcast community on Facebook. We'll put together a poll with like a bunch of the ideas that we have. Look around on the Great Courses Plus and tell me what you think I should take with my mom. And then maybe you'll join us with your mom or, hey, you're all moms. Join with your own kids (laughs) or like a friend. Absolutely. Kristen, I took together last time. I love it. And it's so easy to participate. So of course, look for our poll, go over to our Facebook group. And you know what? You can just sign up for The Great Courses Plus through the link. It's bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y slash We Time Project. And of course, it'll be in our show notes, wherever you listen to the podcast. So take a look there and you're going to get a free month trial. Then make sure to join us April 25th on Facebook to chat. You know, big reveal. Nancy's going to be there, which is super, super fun. (laughs) And, you know, in the meantime, while you're waiting, check it out. They have over 13,000 amazing courses. Can't say you're going to be like me and be inspired to start a food gardening plot. But you know what? Houseplants, you know, there's philosophy, there's dancing, there's go to Italy. I mean, gosh, there's so many choices. So definitely look them up, give them a try, click that link, sign up, and then join us for the We Time Project. Okay, it's time for our cool picks of the week. And Liz, our resident data nerd, Jessica, you know what she did? She went back to the episode you were on before and discovered, much to my chagrin, that I recommended Fuller House the last time you were on. Which I don't even know that that really happened. I think I need to see the tapes. I don't I don't know what's going That's on. That's excellent. Do you know what I recommend? I can go back and check. But I know I recommended the um unicorn doll with the rainbow shooting out of its butt. Oh. Great. Great. I'm sure Jessica chose something very, very important and useful. But no pressure, Jessica. What is your cool pick for this time? So I host a podcast called the Hashtag Am Writing Podcast. It's me. It's KJ Delantonio, whose book, The Chicken Sisters, was Reese Witherspoon's pick in December, and Serena Bowen, who is a self-published, many times over, best-selling author. And Serena gave me a gift one year that has become one of my favorite things. And she gave me a small set of the pilot friction 
friction, F-R-I-X-I-O-N markers. Now, the cool thing about these markers, because we have these calendars and they're kind of bullet journals, kind of calendars, and we tend to do a lot of coloring in them just as we're, you know, working and stuff. The cool things about these markers is that they are completely erasable and not because they like tear the paper apart and take the marker off the paper. It's because the (laughs) ink, it's because the ink in the marker is heat sensitive and the friction that the eraser makes on the paper makes the ink go away. So I have, I I bought the big collection of like, I don't know, there's like 20 of them here in all different colors. And I color all over my calendar and my journal and stuff like that. And it erases completely 100%. You can't even see that it's ever been there. So they're by Pilot and they're the F-R-I-X-I-O-N, the friction colors. And they're spectacular. I love that. And Jessica, I looked it up for you. Your last pick was The Boys in a Boat. Oh, The Boys in the Boat. The whole family will enjoy together. So you picked good picks. I like it. Wow. I am enthralled by the erasable markers. They're so good. So Liz, good good luck. What do you got? (laughs) Uh, Well, it's not going to be a narwhal pooping uh, (laughs) rainbows this time. Okay. All right. (laughs) But I found, okay, you know, I'm obsessed with mascara these days. Mascara to me is the new lipstick in the age of masking. And so I found another new mascara I love. Now I have a bunch of mascaras and I use them all for different (laughs) things. But uh, I tried a new one. I really like it. It's from Benefit. So I finally got my brows tamed just a bit at the Benefit Brow Bar and they sold me on the Their Real Magnet Extreme Lengthening Mascara and I love it. It's really good. It's like supposedly got some kind of magnetic technology and the magnet is in the brush so when you're lifting up your lash it it like pulls it because of the magnet. I don't even know. I I don't know if that's real. I just know that it looks really great. I love the teeny teeny little brush for if you have to get those little lashes in the corners. It goes on beautifully. It doesn't smudge. So I've been very happy with it. So that's my cool pick. I'll link it up on our podcast page on Cool I love the idea that mascara is like the thing to do when the rest of your face doesn't show because all of my masks have a little, I use the Burt's Bees tinted uh, lip balm Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so all of my masks have you get it inside inside. they're so gross (laughs) they're so gross that's how my kids know they're mine they're like ew this is yours (laughs) exactly all right i just want to say for the record for our listeners for you both that i have actually seen all of the best picture oscar nominees this year (gasps) you beat me can you believe it it's 2020 2021 2020 and you know why it's because no one could go to a movie theater yeah (laughs) amazing all of them that's amazing so how did you know where to stream them Kristen? well funny you should ask liz we have a fantastic (laughs) post over on cool mom tech from our editor kate it is so handy she did all of the best picture nominees all of the best animated feature nominees which of course are the ones that we generally have seen at least when our kids were younger, and Best Documentary Feature Film. And why I love Kate, I mean, we love Kate for many reasons, is that she added up how much it would cost you (laughs) if you didn't have the streaming services. And some of them, you know, you have to rent because they're new releases. Mm -hmm. It's $66. So $66 if you want to watch all of these things. That's basically half of my family at one movie. In a movie right. theater. No kidding. I was going to so, say, we yeah. go to Alamo Draft House, four of us, the kids get the milkshakes. That's like a hundred bucks right there. <laughs> so that's actually a good deal. This year, we've got two female directors. Like, this is a good year. So we've got some time. It is. 
binge watching in full effect here. But anyway, we will link up this great post. But yes, I just wanted to proclaim that this was the year. I don't know if it'll ever happen again, but it, it happened one time in my life, I'm, I can say. That's impressive. very impressive. <laughs> I actually just paid to rent Judas and the Black Messiah oh, this weekend, and it was one zillion percent yes, worth yes. all the monies. Yes. My uh, high schooler is in the middle of a all three Hobbit movies rewatch because one of the oh. cool th- one of the oh. cool things we found out sort of a bunch of you know parenting educator people we've been talking a lot about the fact that kids have been going back and reading their comfort books watching their comfort movies and actually when my college student was home too they watched a bunch of like Pixar and Disney films like animated stuff and my 22 and 17 year old and it was it's about comfort it's about going back and watching those things it again is. that make you feel comforted so I love it he's down there watching The Hobbit right now yes that's wonderful let's get back to the simpler things exactly. there's something nice about that exactly well that's it thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Spawn. huge thanks to our guest Jessica Leahy and to our awesome engineer John Bowen and hey thanks to you too if we can trouble you for just a brief moment, <laughs> just a small little tiny request, if you've got a moment and can leave us a five-star review, we would so appreciate your time and effort. Also, by subscribing to Spawned and downloading our episodes, it really helps other listeners like you find us, and it really does support us. Yes, do it right now. And also join us over on Facebook. We have our Spawned podcast community that we mentioned a little earlier. You can join us there. We also have Recipe Rescue and Outtech Your kids. We talk about all kinds of things. You know, of course, I'll take your kids, probably tech, recipe rescue, probably food. We just like chatting about lots of kinds of things. We are very interested and interesting. (laughs) Yes, as we say so ourselves. But anyway, you could join us over there. We would love, love, love to have you. Thanks so much for listening to Spawn. This is Kristen. And this is Liz. Have a great day. Bye. Bye.